Get to the church, blind! Get to the church, blind! Go! Now! I'm Pete Mitchell, and he's Peyton Jones, and you're listening to Hardcore Church Planning, the companion podcast for the Church Planner Podcast and Church Planner Magazine. Each week, we'll bring you interviews from planners who are in the trenches making it happen right now. These active church planners bear it all, share their successes, their failures, and what they'd wish they'd known when they were first starting out. Listen in to discover how God is working in their church plan. Hey, church planner, this is Pete Mitchell. And this is Peyton Jones. Coming to you for our midweek podcast, Hardcore Church Planning Podcast. And of course, as opposed to the Church Planner Podcast, this is our interview format uh, podcast. So Peyton, why don't you introduce our guest today? So we have in uh, the uh, church, uh, Hardcore Church Planning Studio. I made that up. There isn't one. Um, But... (laughs) We have in the virtual studio sitting here drinking cups of virtual coffee. Um, we have Larry Osborne. He is the pastor of North Coast Church and uh, up in North County, San Diego. And uh, he's the author of multiple books. He's got The Accidental Pharisee, Sticky Team, Sticky Church, and his new book we're going to talk a little bit about today, Thriving in Babylon. So, Larry, welcome on. Thank you. Glad to be with you. You know, uh, Larry, before we get started, one of the first things we always like to ask our guests is their story of how they came to faith, uh, just to kind of let our, our listeners know a little bit more about their background and their their journey that they've taken to reach the point that they're at right now. So why don't you tell us your story? Sure. Well, the, the short version is I grew up in an outstanding Christian home, but not a very healthy church, uh, extremely legalistic. And so I wasn't uh, very interested in the Christianity that that church had. Uh, my folks, to their credit, that wasn't their core. That's just kind of what all they knew. Uh, so they weren't the worst of that. They were kind of the best of that environment, if you will. And uh, right before my senior year of high school, I became a Christian. When God's working on you, he, just, he wins every time. And uh, felt immediately a call to teach the Bible and an interest in doing stuff, anything but the local church. And then I uh, was invited by a friend uh, to uh, uh, Calvary Chapels, if you will, at Ground Zero, about 400 people. So we're talking wow. long before it was Calvary Chapel, whatever. There was an old bald dude. He was 42, but I thought he was old, uh, teaching 10 <laughs> chapters verse by verse, King James, no less, out of the Old Testament, kind of a McGee running commentary. And though we didn't use the <laughs> word back then, uh, the, the word I'd use today was seemed authentic. And I came home that night and I realized I could be Larry and be a pastor. And so I got saved and felt a call into vocational ministry really in a very quick time, about nine months, Um, nine months of going to a church I didn't like, if you will, uh, but being passionate about God, then finding out, oh, I could I could pastor church and be Larry. And that's been my journey ever since. North Coast to this day is a youth group for adults, and uh, it's a church I'd want to go to. Uh, And so my spiritual journey has been kind of a winding path through lots of different tribes which is part of, I think, God preparing me to work with uh, with church planters and uh, younger megachurch guys because uh, I learned to speak a little bit of Christianese in all our different dialects. And it was because I went kind of extreme to extreme. And then my first youth ministry job was a ethnic Armenian church, 900 Armenians, IAN at the end of their name, and part of a Presbyterian uh, background. Then I got hired by a healthy Baptist church. Then I ended up here. 
So it's been winding wow. and uh, fun all along the way to see everywhere that God has his people doing his stuff. That is so cool, man. I did not know that about you. And, um, you know, there's a couple of things right off the back that, that stick out. Number one, you're real passionate about um, shared ministry. You know, obviously you, you wrote two books, you know, um, you know, Sticky Church, Sticky Teams, you know, both had the word sticky, but the one with teams in it was about teams. And uh, <laughs> you really lay out there that whole idea of guys serving together and uh, tag team and trading off. And I know for you, Larry, when you say, you know, look, I could be Larry and pastor, it's not about your ego. And I very much get that from your writing. Um, I get that it's not the Larry Osborne show. And uh, it, it's cool, man. That's that's really rare, really refreshing. And um, so how did you get involved? I mean, you know, that was kind of the, the question there about your ministry experience. But uh, how did you get passionate about multiplication, reaching the loss in church planning? Well, I, I, I think anybody who cares about Jesus is uh, going to care about the kingdom instead of their castle. And I was just very lucky. I had some Barnabas-like people early on in my ministry. Uh, and so Barnabas kind of quickly became my hero. I, I think it's part of how God made me as well. I was a basketball player, though anybody who knows me, I look more like a nose guard than a point guard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, I was a point guard, and anybody knows basketball, that's a position where you, you got to make everybody better. So I, I just had a lot of experiences uh, that way. And uh, then, you know, our culture, the body of Christ always moves in different directions. Every 10, 15, 20 years, there's kind of a different focus. And so church planning is really just a kingdom mindset. Yeah. Uh, and so that I, I don't think I was so much passionate about it as I've, I've always had a kingdom mindset. And uh, when the spirit of God in the American church was starting to raise up, uh, rise up a sense of, of church planning is more important than you guys have realized. It's not just church growth. It was a natural place for me to come alongside uh, church planters and say, okay, you're, you're going to be a group of people I'll, I'll focus on, and uh, how can I help you have healthier churches? I didn't plant North Coast. It was a church plant that was a year and a half old, meeting in a school, about 70 adults on my quote candidating Sunday. Uh, so I know what it's like to lead a church plant. Yeah. Uh, for five years, I was the only staff member. You know, people look at a church yeah. our size and think, oh, you know big church. And yeah, I know big church, but five years without staff. And, uh, very, you know, we grew one person our first three years. So, you, so that impacts you quite a bit. Big time. And you came into that church plant, gosh, in the second year, people always ask, you know, what's the hardest thing about church plant? I always say the second year. <laughs> so you came into the, probably the worst time for that church plant. You came in when the, when the going's rough, obviously, I don't know the history, but there's a reason they call the pastor a year and a half in, you know, that's, yeah. that's the hard times, man. <laughs> what, what added hard uh, difficulty to it was, you know, in a church plant, people aren't so much falling in love with Jesus as a leader. Mm. Amen. And then you're transferring, if we're honest about it, and then you're transferring their allegiance to the Lord. Amen. Uh, and at a year and a half, uh, I wasn't the guy I replaced who went on for good reasons. He left to go get a PhD. He became a very well-known uh, New Testament scholar. Uh, and wow. uh, so he was loved. And so when I came in, obviously a different person doing different things, I had that whole battle of that even not only church plant, but then successors have. Uh, you're a different guy. Yeah. I thought I was. <laughs> well, I love the fact there's a New Testament scholar out there in his office telling himself <laughs> over and over, 
I could have been Larry Osborne. I could have been Larry Osborne. <laughs> well, Larry, th- this book is is very different than the other books of yours that I've read. Um, what's it about? Give, give him the name of the title again, Peyton. Oh, sorry, sorry. Thriving in Babylon. Cha-ching! Is very different. It is different. Um, it reads different. It feels different. Um, explain a little bit to us what is it about and why is it different? Yeah. Well, my leadership books, are, of course, written to leaders. An accidental Pharisee was written in front of a mirror and all kinds of my <laughs> friends. You know, it was an equal opportunity poke uh, at all kinds of different tribes in the body of Christ. Uh, but Thriving in Babylon, part of its feel is that it's more the pastor in me. The, you know, I, I'm, I'm a pastor first. I'm really not a writer or a leader or a consultant speaker. Uh, mm. I've always felt when I died, Jesus is going to ask me about one thing, and that was about how's North Coast doing. Mm. Uh, you know, outside of my family, obviously, the first priority. But ministry-wise, North Coast is number one. It's not a platform. And, and some churches, you guys use it as a platform, and maybe Jesus told them to. I'm not here to judge uh, someone else, but I just always have that strong sense. So it's more in mm. line with a with a pastoral shepherd feel that I have. And uh, what, what drove it was simply the fact that as our culture has become more and more like Babylon, it seems to me our people, uh, at least in my church and the churches I'm around, have become less and less like Daniel. Hmm. Uh, we've almost uh, given up. Wow. Well, God's way doesn't work. Let's fight fire with fire hmm. and spiritual battles with worldly weapons. Hmm. What, what would you say is your, your hope for people that pick up the book and read it? Well, that they'll, they'll go back to understanding that our battle is not against Babylon and that we're not in war, at culture war or any other kind of war, that our, our number one job is persuasion. I have a little book called Mission uh, Creep that talks about the, the five subtle shifts that have uh, uh, sabotaged discipleship and evangelism. And one of those is the move from persuasion to warfare in our terminology and our, our attitudes. Because when I'm at war, I essentially want to wipe out my enemies. Uh, but when I've got persuasion, I want to win over my enemies. And, mm. and to me, that's the big deal, the big difference. That The, the more frustrated uh, we become with some of the things in our culture, uh, the, the more likely we are to see those who are held captive by the enemy as the enemy. And no, Jesus came, incarnated, and died for us while we were, were yet his enemies. It wasn't like a draft room where he projected who we would become. Uh, and, oh, that one's worth dying for. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so we need to reflect what Jesus has done for us. Mm. Amen. Amen. Hey, good stuff. Um, Larry, I see a lot of advice for this book that is useful for church planners. In particular, there's a lot about uh, hardship, suffering, endurance, um, which, of course, you're bringing all back to Daniel. And one of the things I love about the book is it's not a verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It really is kind of a theme and a mindset book, having Daniel's mindset. That's what I got from it anyways. Tell me if I'm wrong and stupid. but yeah. No, very much. I, I've spent a lot of time in Daniel. And uh, as I say in the book, uh, too often Daniel's an adventure story for children or a prophecy manual so we can speculate. And uh, it dawned on me many years ago, no, this is an adult manual, like all the rest of Scripture, for review, correction, instruction, and righteousness. So I started studying, saying, what, how did Daniel respond in a godless environment? And it's, it's just chock full of stuff. So 
having read it, you know, the only chapter I kind of executed, if you will, is chapter one, uh, where we walk through his uh, real realization of the sovereignty of God and then how he had his hope, humility, and wisdom show up in that chapter. And then it just kind of repeats itself all the way through the rest of the book. And so that's why I want to step back and uh, be pastoral, if you will. Imagine we're sitting at Starbucks or or Pete's or any your caribou, wherever your favorite coffee thing is, and and you're saying, okay, I read Daniel one, I read the whole book. How does that live out in life? What what you know? What does that kind of hope, humility, and wisdom? Uh, how does it show up in my church in my town? And part of why it aims at pastors is I wrote it. I always write with like little people on my desk, if you will. Hmm. So I'm writing to real people, not theory. And uh, the book was very much written with pastors in mind. Because if our pastors are despairing, my goodness, our people will be. Mm. And if our pastors aren't humble, our people won't be humble. And same with if our pastors, we turn everything into a big battle, then our people will be confused and not understand the difference between our preferences and what God forbid forbids. So uh, I often will speak at pastors' conferences and use this, just a slight tweak and say, folks, it's got to start with us because our people are picking up their cues, their panic. Uh, their arrogance, their anger, their frustration, they're picking it up from our Christian radio uh, magazines and our sermons. Mm -hmm. That's true. And, you know, I, I can really see how a lot of people come in, you know, as Pharisees um, and, and then we tell them to approach a world mission. And as you said about that warfare mentality, people are doing that. Um, I remember the section of the book where you talk about, you know, coming into the church and, you know, the, the election had been lost. (laughs) <laughs> didn't go the way that, you know, people in church thought it should. And uh, you you came in and said, look, you know, if I had said something like, you know, I guess God's not on the throne and boom, boom, boom. You know, he said they, they would have strung me up as a heretic, but that's how everybody was acting. And so I see a lot where this book could almost be useful for sitting around in a Starbucks, a group of Christians, um, you know, going through this week after week, is that kind of something that you had in mind when you, when you wrote this, not, not just for pastors, but also for just, as you said, being a pastor, having a congregation, hearing, you know, the way that your people thought, is that something that would be helpful from your perspective? Yeah, very much. Uh, When I write, I try to have two things in mind. And uh, one of them is it's called backlist and publishing, as you know, and that means, does this have a life beyond just now? Uh, uh, how can I step back and make sure I'm principal enough that 10 years from now there's value in it? And then the next thing is, is once again, that small group of people reading a book together and trying to drive them to scripture to ask, are these things so? Uh, this book will actually be turned in by, uh, I think it's called Right Now Media. Uh, just signed a contract with them and they'll be shooting some video for uh, the kind of book uh, studies that small groups use. So uh, it was written with that, almost uh, put a curriculum in it, decided not to at the last moment. And I'm pleased next January it'll be picked up that way. Oh, that's great, man. That's great. Uh, I think it should be talked about. Yeah, excellent. And can you can you discuss how this would also apply to church planners? Because, again, all those things about hardship, suffering, endurance, guys on the front line feeling swallowed up, you know, by by the enemy on all sides, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, how, how does this book really speak to guys that are out there on the front lines, kind of like Daniel all alone feeling those yeah. things? Well, I don't think we can ever be reminded of our Lord's sovereignty mm-hmm. over the affairs of mankind and, and the world enough. 
because we're like the children of Israel. Uh, we can rip on them in our sermons, but we're no different. We have marvelous plagues that get us out of Egypt, and then suddenly we're screaming because we're trapped against the ocean. I mean, uh, the Red Sea, a couple of mountains, and a charging army. Uh, and that's that's just life. It's not only life for a church planner. Uh, uh, within the last week, I had something personally that happened that was completely unfair and unjust from my viewpoint. Uh, I, I just got slapped up on something that, you know, was one of those discouraging things. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking, now, how long have I been in ministry and how how much do I know? And I constantly have to just go back, you know, Lord, A, this is no surprise to you. And B, why in the world have I come to think that everybody will always love and understand everything I do with uh, good mm -hmm. intentions? Mm -hmm. uh, we just forget it. So the church planner needs it as much as everybody needs it. Well, I, I think it was Rick Warren I first heard uh, talk about this, that uh, life isn't ups and downs, but it's like two rails that a train runs on. And one of those rails is full of incredible blessings, and the other rail is uh, full of hardship. And life usually has a combo of both of those. Sometimes one is stronger uh, than the others. But again, we forget it. Uh, we think that, well, I've worked my way through those trials. And so now is my time that uh, I'm going to be understood. If I do the right thing, I'll always have the right response. Uh, it's a long way from preaching a sermon to getting it into my own mind and my own heart. And so I think church planners uh, can use the uh, constant reminder of Daniel. Um, he did everything right. He was an absolute victim. And he just said, well, this is what I got. So what am I supposed to do with it? Before Pete goes on to the next question, I want to read a little um, section along those very lines. You say, every now and then I run across a Christ follower who has never really suffered. Some mm. would call them fortunate. I don't. I call them unprepared. Those of us who have never been hassled or marginalized for our faith are ill-equipped to face genuine persecution. We have little chance of thriving in Babylon. We'll be lucky to survive. I'm reminded of a church member who came to me crushed after he'd passed been passed over for a major promotion at work that effectively put a lid on his career. He was an outspoken Christian. His immediate supervisor was an atheist. He was sure that was the reason he didn't get promoted. Through tears, he told me he was angry and frustrated with God. He felt the Lord had let him down. He wondered what good it had done for him to follow Jesus all these years. I didn't know what to say. I thought the main reason we follow Jesus is because he's God and he forgives our sins. I didn't realize it was a career advancement component as part of the deal. <laughs> Sorry, I get sarcastic. It's beautiful. Paul was sarcastic. I think God created sarcasm. I don't think that was an effect of the fall. <laughs> you know, let me ask you this. You you talk about people's belief that the olden days were the golden days. Can you give us our listeners your take on that? Oh, yeah. I love it when I get <laughs> people in suburbia that think, you know, we want to go back to leave it to Beaver uh days and I, i'm always thinking you if those were such great days uh why did they raise all those sex starved drugged uh, out hippies okay. uh you know if the late 60s we had over a hundred uh, cities with riots and things going on uh it's like excuse me that was an era of family values that created that uh free love and sex just uh, well, really, until sexually transmitted diseases became a real problem. I mean, that was being preached culturally as as the future. This is where nirvana can be found. People don't realize that. And then on top of that, 
Uh, that was only true if you were a, a white suburbanite. Uh, if you were mm. an African American living under Jim Crow laws, those were hardly the good old days. Mm-hmm. Amen. Um, so what we get is we get this little myopic kind of view of of our world and our place at one time, and we don't realize the they were nowhere near as good. They always look good in the rearview mirror, not good at all. Mm. Yeah, I remember Warren Wiersbe saying something to the effect of. The golden days are a combination of a bad memory and an overactive imagination. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty true. And then the fear, if we don't trust Jesus, again, that's where the cornerstone of Daniel was his understanding of the sovereignty of God. And I don't even mean that as deeply theological as the arguments between Arminian and Reformed theology. I just mean the core of God's in control, of who's in control, and his will will not be thwarted. That's That shows up in the first two verses of his book, and it's never pointed out enough. And mm. it's not just the foundation that he dealt with his, his troubles and crisis. It is the cornerstone of that foundation. And yet I never heard a message on that in my yeah. entire life when people worked through Daniel. Uh, but uh, he's not a diary. He's looking back, and he says, as I tell my story, first thing you need to know is in the third year of King Jehoiakim, the Lord delivered Jerusalem over, and the Lord is the one who took devoted things from the temple and gave them to Nebuchadnezzar to mock God with. Yeah, it's interesting because not only do you in this book kind of take that golden days myth and bust it, but you say, look, we did not have it, and we still don't have it as bad as Daniel did and in his oh. days. It was way worse in Daniel's day. And then... um, after you do hey, that, let me interrupt for a second. Yeah. We've got people in my church who are worried, well, they might take away our tax deduction if we don't respond properly on you know, gay marriage issues or whatever. It's, uh, I mean, not properly, if we don't respond how the government wants. And I'm thinking, take away our tax deduction. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the greatest persecution of all. It's like, folks, do you realize? I, mm. I'll take it as long as I can get it, but the rest of the world, tax deductions? Yeah. Yeah, no kidding, right? I was reading about, you had a guy in here by the name of Chad, and um, I really liked his story. Um, you mentioned in here about um, how he he was so concerned, and, and again, I see traces here of, you know, again, your, your lifelong enemy, the accidental Pharisee, we mm-hmm. all become it, but I liked how uh, he comes to you, and uh, he's, he talks to you, you know, he's one of those biblical values guys. And he was sure that our failure to speak up enough was the main reason God was letting the bad guys win. And, and I was, I was really, um, I, I lost my train of thought earlier and I was coming back to the fact that you make a point that, uh, it may be that just like Daniel was 70 years in Babylon by God's sovereignty, it may just be that this is God's plan for us right now to, mm-hmm. to, to kind of be where we're at, to learn the things that Daniel was learning and to be able to thrive like Daniel thrived. Um, Go ahead. It always starts with the household of God. And we always think it should start with the most wicked. It's uh, the confusion of Habakkuk when he looks at the Assyrians and and says, God, why would you use them? We've messed up, but they're far worse. And God says, I'm using them now. I'll deal with them later. Uh, He always starts with uh, his family. And we just expect it to be different. And so we'll go, well, I know I'm not living as I should, uh, but I'm sure living a lot better than X. So therefore, God, you take down X. Uh, and yet in, in history, 
Uh, not only does God's discipline begin with his, his own, and scripture says that, uh, at, at the end of the day, we judge everything by the short term. I, I love to point mm. to China versus uh, Western Europe and mm. the Iron Curtain. Uh, we thought we were losing in China. All the missionaries kicked out, Bible's not allowed, mm. and all of that. And yet, there's a greater spiritual hunger there than there is in Western Europe, where we were allowed to have all the Bibles we wanted and have a service anytime we wanted to have a mm. worship service. Uh, that once again, God's ultimate plan cannot be judged by what's happening right now. Amen. I like that. So refreshing to hear that. And even in a church plant where maybe, you know, the guy's got 50 people, 20 people walk out. He thinks, man, I should just quit now. You have no idea what God might be doing in that situation. And so we see it on a, on a macro level. We see it historically. We see it on a micro level. I love how you, you, and I'm going to, I'm just going to read this for our listeners so they can kind of get a flavor of what you write here. He says, uh, he had written you a note and, uh, he was particularly upset when he saw what he saw as the irreversible advance of the gay agenda. And you, you write about, you know, his note ended something like this. I have no idea why God allows the wicked to triumph over the godly, but I do know that the moral collapse of our country can be traced to the gutless failure of church like ours to step up and defend marriage and the basis of biblical morality. And you write, Chad was new to our church. I had no idea who he was, so I asked around. I found out that he was a self-proclaimed longtime Christian who had recently moved into the area. He attended our church regularly for a couple months, signed up to join a small group, and put some money in the offering plate. Oh, and one more thing. He was also living with his girlfriend. Apparently, they've been together for a couple years. Since Chad's big concern was a growing acceptance of gay marriage in our culture, I descended to send him some verses that spoke to the issue. I also suggested he read each verse slowly and carefully, and just in case he was a bit dyslexic. <laughs> I underlined a few key phrases, especially those that clearly condemned the sexual relationship he was having with his girlfriend. Apparently, Chad thought Jesus' statement about choosing a life of celibacy and becoming a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom applied to non-Christian gays. But it was too much to ask of heterosexual believers like him and his girlfriend. And then you go on. Unfortunately, Chad misunderstood how God's judgment works. He thought it begins with the non-Christians. He figured his self-righteous proclaimed faith in Christ should give him a little extra leeway, a free pass for living like a Babylonian with his girlfriend, as long as he had a fish on his truck and followed Jesus in most other areas of his life. But that's not how it works. God's judgment always begins with his own, which is why he raised up the Babylonians and allowed them to sack Jerusalem and maybe why he's allowing the modern day sacking of American Christianity. By the way, I never heard from Chad again. I don't think he appreciated the mirror I sent him. He preferred binoculars. <laughs> um, there are any other books that you wanted to hit on, Peyton? Yeah, um, as, as we're talking about all these things, um, the, a couple of the books, Larry, if we could just talk for a couple minutes about some of your other books. Um, sure. Sticky Teams is actually on, Pete and I do a training session called Jump School. And um, it, every month we have different topics and what have you. Um, but we actually have Sticky Teams on there. It's kind of one of our uh, required reading books that we tell all church planners. You have to, to read this thing. Because it really has to do with the DNA of a church. And as a guy who, you know, uh, you, you've been, how many years you've been in ministry, Larry? Uh, oh, my goodness. In ministry, maybe 40. Uh, September will be my 35th anniversary here at North Coast. So, Wow. That is crazy. I would say to all of our listeners. I started um, in 12. 
What's that? I started at 12. <laughs> 12, years old. 12 years old. Yes, I did hear you went into ministry young. So, uh, this disciple by Charles Spurgeon from the age of six, though, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, it, here's the deal is um, sticky teams, just give us a quick summary of that because that's one that any church planner, every church planner needs to read that book. Yeah, well, basically, it's it's the stuff that no one ever taught me in seminary. It's kind of that was I wrote it to be the book I wish I'd had. Uh, it is the Windows version of uh, it's. Well, let me step back. Think of what Windows is to DOS. I'd written an earlier book mm. when our church is about six hundred, uh, called the Unity Factor, and then a number of years later, with much more learning, much more nuanced understanding of leadership at different sizes, uh, Sticky Teams was written, and uh, it it just tries to be real practical in terms of your congregation, your, your, your board, uh, and your staff. What are the things that create a team that sticks together through thick and thin? Uh, and uh, it has so much to do often, not with our theology, but with our practices, uh, that uh, there are certain things we do uh, as a method that have nothing to do with scripture, uh, but we don't have never really thought it through. And they set us up for dysfunction. Uh, you know, a board that's dealing with uh, uh, minutia it shouldn't be dealing with or uh, the wrong things for its appropriate size. Uh, uh, staff structures that worked at one's focus but don't work at, uh, at another size. So it, it really hopefully is just a kind of a Proverbs of leadership, if you will, uh, is what I was trying to do with this book. Uh, there's not much theology in it. It has an assumption that the people uh, that are reading it have a theological core. And now it says, okay, within the framework of biblical Christianity and the freedom we're given as well, how do you build healthy teams in all of those different areas? Yeah, it's kind of like a safety manual at work where, you know, it's kind of like if I really understand this, you know, like when they give you like the lifting mechanics and all that, you're like, okay, that's going to save me some backache. This book will save you a lot of pain. And when I was reading it, I, I kind of was, was figuring that most guys are are going to arrive at this eventually, maybe 40 yes. years in the ministry, they're going to see this if, if they are thinking biblically. And so guys read that book, sticky teams can save you a lot of pain and consider thriving in Babylon as a group that you can take people through. Um, you would read it as a pastor, maybe take people through. And uh, Pete's got a last question for you, Larry. One of the, uh, one of the favorite questions that people have, for this podcast. In fact, we probably got more comments when we didn't ask it of Francis Chan. But to be fair, we recorded the interview with Francis Chan about a year before we started this podcast. Uh, the question is this. If you were to get into a physical fist fight with Ed Stetzer, who would win? Oh, except Larry, let me say the question is not always about Ed Stetzer. We try to team you up with someone so it would be a fair fight. Like we never, you would kill Francis. So, <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't you know. be fair. Uh, so you're just saying I'm a big guy. Uh, who knows? <laughs> that was uh, it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's actually what, what he put in the notes. Be, he put in the notes to me. Both like, big, guys. big guys. Let's let's uh, put him with Ed Stetzer. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, uh, probably Ed would win because he could marshal more troops to. Uh, uh, say, hey, come here, help me when this guy's winning, right? I like it. That's his hot key. That's right. the the bar The bar room fight turns into a bar room brawl. <laughs> he'd probably he'd probably marshal a few more people than I could. <laughs> so he's got more people sitting at the tables throwing chairs. Yeah, that's right. That's I right. I dig it. I dig it.
Well, I don't know, man. All you got to know is the guy behind the bar with the shotgun. So, <laughs> all right. Well, hey, this has been Hardcore Church Planning. Our guest today has been Larry Osborne. It's been an honor to have you, Larry. Thanks for coming on. And Arnold's going to sign us out. Remember, if you are called to church planting, go hardcore or go home. You've been listening to Hardcore Church Planning. Hardcore Church Planning has been brought to you by the Church Planner Podcast and the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the App Store for both Apple and Android devices. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review. If you didn't like this episode, we'll be happy to give you your money back.